Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin-Lewa, producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we are discussing Rap Ship and Yee Yee, a TV show and a movie about the choices in life and how they shape you as a person. That is actually true for both of these. I'm impressed yet again, Pellin, by yes, your... Yes, <laughs> dude, and we could have done more. I just didn't want to give too much away. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just connecting Issa Rae's sophomore TV works with one of the most incredible Taiwanese films of all time. <laughs> uh, it's what we do here on Criticism is Dead. Welcome. Sure. Uh, how's, your, how's, your week, how's your week been? Uh, my week has been okay. I think I've... I've spent a lot of time actually catching up on various TV shows. Oh, um, yeah. Things that we probably are not going to discuss like on the main episodes, but I think mm. this means we are overdue for like a, a grab bag, like lightning round at, at <gasps> some love point a grab in the coming bag. weeks. Uh, yes. There's, there's just so much. Like, for example, <gasps> Selling the OC, got that oh, all yeah. down in like two days. Um, yeah. Yeah. Industry season two, been working yes. my way through that. Uh, yes. Yeah, just a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah. it's been lots of sort of TV moments for me. Uh, and what about you, Pellin? What What's your week been like? I mean, same. I've been watching too much TV, honestly. But I just wanted to get your quick thoughts, like just a couple words. How do you feel uh-huh. about the House of Dragons premiere? Ooh. Like the first episode. This is a show that we are going to be talking about. Well, 100%. I mean, I liked it. I'm back in, you know? I think yeah. it was a really competent debut and I'm yeah excited i'm like hyped for each sunday i'm excited to be back i'm excited about matt smith's wigs i'm excited <laughs> about all the wigs fantastic wigs um yeah. yeah no it was a fun time i definitely uh will never be giving childbirth um oh for the rest yeah of the i mean i had to uh do some hands <laughs> over my eyes and like oh okay yeah muted at yeah. some of these scenes i mean i know that c-sections have come very far oh, since God. this fantasy world but um i also did watch this is going to hurt which is mm-hmm. about an OBGYN, um and that also did nothing to convince me that that's what i ever want to do so no i mean yeah. really childbirth i cannot imagine a thing that is like less for me yeah no but anyway what did you watch this week i watched rap shit which is on hbo max this is as we mentioned Issa ray's second show and her first like big project uh for tv again after insecure mm. uh, which came to an end and that was sort of like a, a the end of a chapter in in her life i think so she serves as the creator, um, head writer, as well as an executive producer on Rap Shit. And the showrunner is Sarita Singleton, who also mm. wrote for Insecure. Mm. Rap Shit, which has an exclamation point in the place of an I in the title. It has a total of eight episodes, and currently seven have been released. So that's what our conversation will kind of cover. And the, mm-hmm. the season one finale is coming out this Thursday. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, good mm-hmm. timing right now. Yes. So to sum up the show, it is set in Miami and it follows two high school friends, like sort of estranged high school friends who reconnect and decide to form a rap group. And this consists of Shauna played by Aida Osman, who I uh, actually first knew of her from the podcast, keep it. Um, oh. And she's a t- TV writer. She's also a staff writer on this show, as well as one of its two like co-leads. Um, so mm. this character is a hotel clerk with a passion for 
sort of social justice minded rap. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the other half is Mia played by Chameleon, who is an actual rapper who was on love and hip hop Miami. And Mia is oh. a single mom, a with a bunch of sort of jobs or gigs. Like she is sort of like a small time influencer. She does makeup. She does only fans. And these two sort of struggle to get their music career off the ground um, amid like all the other things that happen in life, like mm. relationship problems, money problems, and more. So this story is sort of loosely inspired by the real life story of the City Girls, like mm. another uh, Miami hip hop duo, who also serve as executive producers on the show. So if you're familiar oh, nice. with sort of their rise, you might be able to tell some of the story beats that are going to happen in the show. Mm. I didn't know that Mia was like the woman that plays with Mia is a real a- real rapper. Yeah, she can act. Um, she can really act. She like it's surprising, right? And yeah. like she she can act really well. I think Aida Osmond is also like yeah rap rapping pretty well. So it's kind of a nice yeah. um, and interesting considering their character is sort of like a, a flipped situation in in real life. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if each either one of them had to go to a boot camp, either a rapping mm. boot camp or an acting boot camp. Either way, it's yeah, paid off. I wouldn't like, be surprised, but still. Yeah. Um, so, so how far are you in watching this, Pellin? And, and what are your thoughts so far? Um, I'm caught up. Okay. And do you want the TLDR? Sure. Give it to me. I hate the way that it's shot. Are you talking specifically about the social media yes. type things? Okay. It feels like it's sponsored by Big Tech. Um, <laughs> that being said, I really like the characters. I really like the journey that they're on. So I'll keep watching. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, So that that's like, that's the TLDR of it. Uh, but we yeah. can we can get into it a little bit more. Yeah, I did sort of. I was curious about your thoughts on the the sort of social media format, which is yeah. a big part of the show. And so we can like sort of dive right into that. Yes. So to give like a brief explainer, there are a lot of scenes that are sort of, sort of overlaid with these markers of social media apps like FaceTime, uh, Instagram Stories, uh, Instagram Live, whatever, and. I, I think their their goal is to sort of show how integral social media and the internet are to the lives of these characters, like sure. the point where every single moment that could become like clout or part of their brand, all of that has to be documented and shared. Um, so it's like an interesting choice. It's not one that I think I've seen like this so far. Like, of course, there have been other movies and shows that play with this idea, whether it's like uh movies entirely through zoom or whatever but yeah. this is like every single episode at least starts out with this it often appears in the middle too just like these these overlays and the aspect ratio doesn't really change either it's like shot you know conventionally they just kind of add in this stuff i guess in like post-production yeah so yeah i i think it is kind of a divisive device um, Yeah. so why don't you like it I'm already on my phone all the fucking time, all day. <laughs> I don't need this reflected on on the other screen that I watch. On a story level, it feels mm-hmm. really expository. So I, I think it's a bit of a lazy way of like feeding information to mm-hmm. the audience. That's one. The second one, visually speaking, I just there's just something very uninventive um, about just showing me a character's face reacting to another character's face. I think that's really boring. And like every time the camera pulls out. And then we get a wider shot or a medium wide shot. And then we get to see the surroundings and a composition that actually makes sense. I am relieved because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, probably the cinematographer and the director all know and know how to shoot and know how to light something up. 
mm-hmm. I just hate that their skills are being used in this application. I'm sure it's very fun for them to play with this, you know, like it's rare that you get to do this kind of technique. For me as an audience member, I just feel very tired by it because <laughs> but, and like I'm waiting. It's like I'm holding my breath so I can wait until we get back to the regular way that it's shot. And it's yeah. just and it's funny because like when when they do when they do go back to how they normally like how we are normally used to TV shows, it's shot very similarly to Insecure. You know, like where the person's face is like offset from the rest mm-hmm. of the landscape or from the rest of the surroundings. And that, you know, communicates singularity and like individuality or whatever. But it's like whenever we do the whenever we do the FaceTime or the Instagram live format of it, I just feel that's a phone. That's for interpersonal communication. It's not for TV or film. I don't think that it's I mean, it's creative in some sense, but some some sense, but it's not in the creative that I like it to be. Mm-hmm. So that's that's ultimately fair. it for me. What about you? How do you yeah. feel about it? I, I noticed that you haven't said anything yet, so. I think I also started out being quite repelled by this, mm-hmm. especially in the the first couple of episodes where I was like, oh, God, it, it's going to become like a thing. I right. think I got more used to it as we moved on in later episodes. Like I, I kind of understand at least theme wise, thematically, like what they're trying to say yeah. about all of these usages yeah it's not that doesn't mean i necessarily like like it as much as i would have liked to see you know more conventionally shot um versions of those scenes but i'm at this point where i'm like you know i can get through it i don't mind it as much but i definitely had like i think the same initial reaction as you yeah it is interesting i think to see people's reaction to this because like i said it does seem to be kind of like split 50 50 on people who like this and people who are like no this this shit sucks um well it's been yeah it's been like an issue right up until like this last five seven years i feel like the conversation of how to integrate social media into film and tv and how people try and creatively do it through like graphics and and on like on screen on screen graphics and like how they're talked about and how they're depicted it's like an existential question essentially for like creators um right and like trying to do it differently this is certainly like <laughs> just going head first into it and like yeah it's certainly one of the more um it just i guess like fully integrated you're, you're really yeah you're yeah. really sunk into this um yeah. which is like for better for worse uh yeah, yeah i agree there has been like a struggle to do that overall it often comes across as is corny in this medium yeah and just like not really well integrated also, like, you're here, also, this is a side note, but I'm surprised mm-hmm. how little, like, how small or non-existent role TikTok is playing in, like, this sort yeah. of grab bag of social media apps that they keep surfacing and yeah. that are kind of really important to the show and the narrative. Um, yeah. Especially for music, you know? TikTok is a huge one. Yeah. And so it feels even a little bit, tiny bit, like, dated in that yes. sense, in that TikTok is not, in, in you know, incorporated yeah. to, to any level, really. But... There are other things that I think are are working for it and not working for it. I don't want to necessarily compare it to Insecure, but Mm -hmm. to bring it up, like, Insecure, I felt was very much rooted in LA. Mm -hmm. Like, you get that sense of place. Miami, I'm not getting as much of a sense of place yet. Like, there aren't those lingering shots of, you know, the food at a restaurant. Like, how Insecure was so much of it could be interpreted as, like, lifestyle. Right aspirational lifestyle porn and it was really comforting and beautiful in that way yeah this show is like much more 
hustling and grinding. Like they're on the move. They're mm-hmm. trying to make things happen. Um, and that is maybe one of the things I can appreciate about this with, there is more of a defined story to rap shit. Like there yeah. is not, it's really contained like in these yes. yep. episodes, which yep. are pretty short. They're like half hour episodes. They're only going to be eight total. So they don't have a lot of space and, and room to sort of mess around with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thematically it is about having this like dream and doing all the work, whatever it takes to work your way towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about kind of like the unpleasant sides of trying to achieve fame yes, or like make it in the music industry, like yeah. in our contemporary world, of course. And yeah. Actually, Alison Herman, again, we love Alison, friend hey, of the Allison. pod. She, uh, in her review of the show, she kind of likens it to an alternate version of Atlanta in a way. Mm. So Atlanta, it, it kind of jumped a little bit from like, the struggle, Paperboy struggle to to achieve fame and make it in music industry to, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly he he is huge. We didn't get as much of the in between of the the hustle and grind that it took to get there. Yeah. Whereas rap shit, as Allison writes, explores the grit and grind that can um be the cause of fame, not not necessarily yes. the the after effects yes. of the fame. You know what? So it's yeah. It kind of reminded me of How to Make It in America, Rest in Peace, uh, mm. Bring It Back, HBO, thank you so much. Um, it reminded <laughs> me of that because so much of How to Make It in America is about that hustle and it is about the grind. And it is also about two people that are very different yeah. from one another, trying to, you know, two best friends, like uh, obviously different. These these two women are uh, reconnecting, whereas How to Make It in America, they're best friends already, but they're such different people. And it, I mm. really it itch that scratch a lot for me um Mm -hmm. which i really liked as well and like obviously new that was set in new york and new york was such a big character in that too yeah i personally thought i can really get an idea of miami with this i get what you mean they could they could do a little bit more but as someone that isn't from miami i've been i've been there one time and it certainly felt the way that they're showing it um especially like with her hotel work it's a great device of her um, of like showing what the city is about basically which is it is a tourist place but there's also a bunch of people trying to work and like live their actual lives throughout it yeah and i guess as for the story itself uh i do think it's fun it mm. is sort of crammed with a lot of stuff like there yeah is not just like the the main duo what each of them are doing and what they're doing together but there's also like their pseudo manager who's also hustling and then that's yeah. like again feeding into the main theme but with such little space and time, again, a total of maybe like four hours yeah. for the entire first season. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like there's a lot to compete with the the main storyline. Yes. that That's, I guess, one of my complaints. I, I wish we had a little more time to focus on building out the characters yeah. of, of Mia and Shauna. Yeah. Who are both played well, I think. Like, Aida Osman and Chameleon are both good. Yeah. Chameleon is especially good, which again mm-hmm. we mentioned that it's it's surprising because she has not really done acting before, right. but she brings like this kind of complexity to her character and vulnerability, and then the, on the other hand, like the really strong, fierce facade as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. She's bringing all the dimensions. Just the fact that yeah, the fact that she like seems so strong but is actually very tender, and you can see it all on her face. It's just it's very skilled, like straight up really impressed i was also gonna say the thing that you said about like the difference between insecure and this one 
this this is definitely the wants and needs of the characters are very clear it's literally yes. it's it's so much clearer than insecure where the whole point was that she was she was confused like that was the whole problem um yeah this sort of like aimlessness of yeah. being in your late 20s early 30s yeah. you don't really know what you want to do in life yeah. like these characters are similarly feeling sort of stuck but they they know what they want to be the Ultimately, way out and, yeah 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 it's about their struggle to get there instead of the struggle to just get anywhere exactly yeah so i have a question for you um mm-hmm. this show does a really great job of showcasing uh revenue streams that aren't necessarily legal and yes, you know one, one of them put it lightly. yeah so it's like you know credit card fraud and then also um sex work but particularly with with chastity it's the fact that she is ultimately the pimp right she's the person that collects the money from the sex workers that she manages um how do you feel about especially with regards to chastity about her as a character in terms of like should we be rooting for her should we be rooting for her in relation to the two girls like do we want her to be the manager or not i think the show kind of sets it up to make us want to root for her or to attempt to make the viewer want to root for her like they gave chastity a point of view episode pretty early on which is like for someone who is not one of the two main leads, but I guess she is a third lead. Yeah. Um. It was yeah. It was kind of a lot of space to dedicate to someone who is doing something like this. That's kind of in like legally or ethically like great area. Yeah. It's more. Um, it's so more I think the, the ethical. show definitely wants us yeah. to feel sympathy for her to kind of see where she's coming from mm-hmm. to maybe want to root for her to also hustle and grind her way to the top out of this yeah. sort of predicament yeah uh, yeah i don't know it's an interesting choice to have a character like yeah. this but i ultimately do think the show is trying to get us to root for her by mm. you know showing her circumstances why she's doing this yeah what goes into her drive like this sort of patheticness yeah. but also i guess you could say like admirable grind that she's on anyway yeah it's fascinating to me because i I don't really want her to be the manager of the two girls. I think she's a hindrance. Um, mm-hmm. So I get it. It's just, it's really smart how they have figured out her, like the way that they're presenting her character. I think it's a really good like litmus test to see both like what the creators are thinking and also like what the audience is, how the audience is like receiving her too. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if it's like a miscalculation yet. At this yeah, me point. neither. Um, it feels a little bit like it's sitting in the gray area. And that seems yeah. very smart right now. But like, yeah, the way that it might land, uh, like in the most recent episode, spoiler alert, she ends up pimping out her girls for free um, mm-hmm. as, a, as quote unquote, an investment. And then when one of her girls argues against it, she shouts at her um, and, you know, plays the dominant pimp, basically, like the role of the dominant pimp yeah. to just a shut really her up. Sort of ugly way. Um, yeah. And I thought that was interesting because I was like, they're showing that this isn't fun. I'll just end with one note, which is that like Insecure, this has a lot of great music in it. Yes. Um and I think that is in part helped by the fact that Issa Rae started a music label and mm. this is sort of is playing a role in showcasing like up and coming artists or yeah. uh you know hip hop artists and and rappers from all different parts of the industry yeah. so yeah it's it's a good time and the actual tracks from the main duo they they've only done two so far within the show but actually like pretty good yeah pretty catchy like you could see they how they could be real legit songs yeah i'm sure they had like legit 
artists like working on these i would like to have seduce and scheme on my uh apple music please thank you <laughs> so much yeah no i'm i my last thing that i want to say is i'm so glad that the sex scenes are just as good if not better than the ones on insecure i'm happy about seeing people fuck on screen <laughs> yeah some nice like elements going on overall i think like uh, some aspects of the show, of course, as he mentioned, maybe feel a little bit too tight, maybe a little bit too uh, messy or mm-hmm. a little bit predictable in some cases. But overall, there's some nice acting going on. There's some nice um, other elements going on. It's a good series, I think, to add to the weekly rotation. And I'm glad that Issa Rae is continuing to do you know, what she wants to do. Absolutely. So, so what did you watch this week, Pellin? So on Tuesday night, my husband and I, we went to BAM in Brooklyn and we watched the 35mm screening of Yee Yee, which is a film that we had both seen before. Um, It is one of our favorite films of all time. And then I was like, huh, I should probably talk about this film because I love it so much. So for those of you that do not know, Yee Yee is it's a three-hour epic. I would say a family epic. Please don't balk at this. You can catch it on Criterion Collection. Um, this film is written and directed by the Taiwanese filmmaker Edward Young. Yi Yi is a film about one stage in a single family um, in their lives and focuses on three generations within it. All their problems, both big and small, and how it reflects upon their take. Um, on the meaning of life, which is a very broad way of describing it. Um, so this was Young's final film before his death. Um, some say it's his best. This film came out in 2000. I just want to give a little bit of a snapshot into the critical landscape for this film back in 2000. So Roger Ebert gave this film 3.5 stars out of 4. And Nigel Andrews of the Financial Times said, Describing Yee Yee as a film about a family drama is like saying Citizen Kane is a movie about a newspaper. I think that's uh, a great way of summing it up because I think Citizen Kane is iconic and I think Yee Yee is on par with Citizen Kane. I think it's an epic that is one of the best films in cinema history. Um, So, when did you watch this? How do you feel about it? How's it going for you? Uh, So, I actually hadn't watched this before. So, this week was the first time I watched it and thank you for the criterion login of course of course uh you know i watched it with my mother who is (gasps) of course she she was born in china and she loves watching any films that are in chinese and Mandarin. so yeah perfect fit yes um yeah it was really good yeah well okay first and did your mom like it as well yeah she i think she really did yes Um, yes she yeah, it has the official Chinese mother's seal of approval. Fuck yeah. Yeah, she. I think she could really relate to some elements, and it was just a, a very sort of moving human portrait. Yeah, yeah. A little bit, but I feel like this is necessary for me to explain to you guys in terms of like the importance of this filmmaker and also of this film. Uh, Yang is one of the prominent authors of Taiwanese New Wave, along with Ho Xiaoxian and Sai Ming Liang. Taiwanese New Wave is very similar to french new wave but it came many many decades after so it spanned the 1990s into the early aughts. some say it continues today and much like the french new wave taiwanese new wave rejects like traditional storytelling techniques and like applies a more experimental sometimes non-linear meditative way of filmmaking and this is because you know a lot of those filmmakers were kind of bored with the traditional way of storytelling in cinema at the time and they were like scrappier indie filmmakers 
that were just trying new shit out. They were influenced by the rest of the world and like other auteurs around the world. So it's all very fun. It's all a moment in time. The types of films in Taiwanese New Wave, they kind of answer existential or try to answer existential questions questions about modernity versus tradition culture versus modernity you know um in the city versus the countryside so the cityscape and the countryscape are for the most part like the most prominent yeah i just uh, i i love this moment i'm i've seen a lot of films in this period i think he is probably my favorite film out of this point in time and out of this point in cinema so in terms of the three generations of this family in in Yi Yi, they comprise of Yang Yang, who's played by Jonathan Chang as our eight year old youngest boy, Ting Ting, played by Kelly Lee, our teenager, and then NJ, the dad, played by Wu Nian Jen. Um, we also have Min Min, the mum, played by Elaine Jin, and then I just wanted to give a shout out to Mister Ota, who's one of my favorite characters, played by Isi Ogata. Who is your favorite out of, I guess, our three main protagonists in this, out of the three generations? I have to say, pretty much overwhelmingly, uh, the little boy. Yang Yang! Yeah, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, truly one of the best child actors in the child actor canon. Like, if if you've listened to this podcast before, you know know that we love a good child actor. We think it's incredibly impressive when a kid pulls it off. And he is truly incredible, truly amazing. Also, the most simple storyline, right, out of all of them. Like, nothing really happens for Yang Yang, but the most profound at the same time. So a little bit of a, a plot redux. The film starts off at a wedding and the matriarchal grandmother ends up having a stroke and then falls into a coma. And from that point on, we kind of go on a journey with the three of them. So NJ is, as a father and as a patriarch of the family, he's an engineer and he's trying to figure out a business decision with his partners. And he runs into his first love his journey is about his first love and also about this business decision and for ting ting a new neighbor comes in um into their like middle class high rise that they live in and it's a young girl her age and she has a boyfriend and ting ting is very quiet and shy and they end up befriending one another but then um her friend's boyfriend kind of mixes up that dynamic a little bit and then for Yang Yang, he is bullied by <laughs> he's bullied by the girls, like the slightly older girls in his school. And he gets given a camera by his father. And he tries to take photos around and tries to get out of trouble, but always stays in it. And then <laughs> essentially um <laughs> essentially like ties up the film. Um, I think in a essentially a neat bow at the end of it. In terms of themes what were the ones that stuck out to you? I, one of the themes I, I really liked that is maybe a smaller one, not not as much of a large, you know, existential life theme, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the power of cinema and mm. photography and just like image making. Yeah. Um, like, especially through Yang Yang and how he approaches photography as a way to help people see the other half of their lives like you said the the thing behind you that yeah a person can never see which is the back of their own head yes um literally he photographs that and he has like a really profound sort of approach to this like a a philosophical thing for this little eight-year-old yeah and then ting ting's conversation like with with fatty at one point where they're talking about the lives that you can see through films and, and the fatty is very adamant about 
the power films being in like how they portray real lives and yeah. how you can explore so many people's other lives through film and and Ting Ting is she's young and naive she's she's much more sort of naive in a sense where mm-hmm. she's like well I don't want to see real life in films so if I want real life I can just live real life you right. know yeah and so there's this whole thing about the lives that we lead and yeah. uh, it's sort of a meta commentary on the film itself too because it's very much a sort of real life film yes. um, reflecting yeah. the ups and downs of a family's life in in like realism of the closest detail. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing where you're like, okay, if I want something very realistic, then I, maybe I'm, I, I'm not looking for it in movies. Yeah. So it's sort of a meta commentary or response in a way um, in the film itself that we're watching. Yeah. But yeah. No. That's like a sort of smaller theme, I think, but uh, that's one that I thought was really, cleverly done through these different threads that are woven together yeah. and also like the sort of meta self-aware aspect of that it's funny that you say that it's not like the most prominent because it feels like it is overall especially with the way that certain things happen but you're right i mean <laughs> dude young young's like the foes at the back of the head the second he took them because he says something very profound at, like near the beginning of the film to his father which is how come you can only know half the truth in life he clearly doesn't understand how profound his question is. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he can't answer, like his father can't answer what he, you know, he can't answer that question. And we as an audience, because we're posed this question by him, also can't answer that. But the fact that an eight-year-old has nailed <laughs> like what life is about, which is you only know half truths. It's always in between. It's always the gray area. It's always sometimes two truths, you know, like that's that's life. Um, is so artfully and skillfully done and i think my one of my favorite things about this film is i'd watched it for the first time alone with like with my husband and then this time just watching it in a movie theater with like many many people was the laughter because it's actually a really funny film and there's actually a huge role that comedy plays in this i really liked how it said something about the silliness of life and how it juxtaposes that with the seriousness and the profoundness of life at the same time because what is life if it isn't like kind of dumb and kind of funny and silly at the same time that it is deeply sad and existential and like you know you're full of regret for example so mm-hmm. i really enjoyed that part of it i will say i think nj is my favorite out of the three mm-hmm. of them um mm-hmm. you know he's a husband he's a father he's a businessman successful because you know his family's pretty seems pretty comfortable but it's at this moment in i guess Taiwanese economy where there's like a tech boom that's happening and they're trying to catch up to the tech boom so it's a particular snapshot into his life and the fact that he bumps into sherry his first love the way that that arc continues throughout the film especially his relationship with mr ota and the way that mr ota is with him in terms of like telling him who he is you know you're a good man don't kid yourself you can't lie you know all of this there's something super profound and i really identified with him um especially the way that things play out with sherry the way that they both ultimately 30 years later still love each other deeply and are still like worried about that point in their lives where things could have been different and how they where where they end up which is like actually would it have been different? You know, like, would it have been essentially the same? Would my life look the same if we ended up marrying instead of me marrying the woman that I did marry? 
but if it didn't if it if it was going to be happier like just living with your regret you know i love a film that makes you sit with these questions did you have any critiques of it was there anything about it that you didn't like not exactly because the things that i maybe like would reflexively say like oh like it's it moves a little slowly at times or it was a mm. little long but all of those sort of reflexive critiques but i i can't really stand behind them because mm. i understand how in setting out to paint these portraits of each of these characters and there are multiple characters they had to do it in this way they had to yeah linger over their details and the quiet moments yeah. and the everything that happens in each of their lives in this period of time. So in in doing that, like that necessitated this sort of longer runtime, yeah. these quieter moments, this slow, drawn out sort of feeling uh, across the stretch of it. So no, I, I can't really say that there were necessarily like legit and real critiques that right. I, I could stand behind for this film. Yeah, I think it hits it just just right yeah i agree one thing i wanted to talk to you about is individuality within a family unit i think there's something very accurate that's portrayed here did you notice how like the family isn't all together yeah they have almost zero interaction yeah, it's just it's literally just the beginning and the end and throughout the film <laughs> like yeah like young young is with ting ting or young young is with his father but for the most part these characters are alone and i really liked how it explored whatever they were going through alone like we were just hanging out with them for the most part especially young young who is like definitely we we see him interacting with his classmates and everything but we are so at his level we are, we see what he sees and we just sit with him it's so artful and it's so particular, but it also says something philosophical, which is like, we even within a family unit, a family unit is made up of individuals that have come together out of circumstance. And the fact that everybody's journey is different. And that's okay. You know, like it really just as long as we're together when it matters, which is again, like at a wedding or at a funeral, for example, then that's kind of all that matters. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, so this was Edward Young's last film before he died he died seven years after he made this film he died of co colon cancer oh, at the age of wow. 59 um so very young and i don't know a better swan song truly for a filmmaker to have in terms of a life and a work and you know what someone is trying to say you know capital essay the reason why is because this film has marriage it has birth and it has death all wrapped up in it in addition to family and individuality and everything that comes in between but like within these like large stages of life we see disappointment we see heartbreak we see joy mischief love regret like all of the important emotions all of the emotions that stick with us throughout our lives and i just thought that you know when, once you think about it like that it's actually obviously it's like very sad and I, I, you do wonder, like, was he sick? Did he know he was sick when he was making this film? You know, if he did, it's wild. And then if he didn't, it's also wild to me. Ultimately, I think it's just a beautiful thing for people to understand as well in terms of the context of, like, the filmmaker and his life and, like, his body of work. You don't necessarily need to see, like, the rest of Edward Young's films, even though I highly recommend it, especially A Brighter Summer Day. But this is, I think, if you're going to watch one film... <laughs> by him I, I think this is the one to watch and it's fascinating that, that it's his last ever film um i finally wanted to talk to you a little about about the character of taipei 
in this because it is it is a character um and we do travel a little bit like we go to japan for a bit but how did you feel taipei was directed like i've never been have you ever been i have been to taipei once a few years ago mm. and i mean it really captured what i saw and, and felt and experienced uh, about taipei there's the sense of greenery mm. throughout the city that is otherwise like quite old like a yeah. lot of the buildings the infrastructure you can see their age on them mm -hmm. and then bursting in between there's like this vibrant green yeah. like the foliage and the, the trees and the grass and yeah. it's so so beautiful um yeah and this captures that quite like exactly yeah. like it, it's really beautiful and moody and it, it's just gorgeous it made you it makes you kind of feel longing in a sense even if yeah. you've never been to a place like yeah. this i also think that it did it like just this film did such a great job of talking about a city or having a city as a character and how liminal space kind of relates to that in terms of the characters um the building you know the high rise that they live out of the fact that we can hear arguments through the walls um we don't see these people um especially like with the use of windows to blinds going up and down everybody's in a very large city and we're living like right up against people like many many people like many people in big cities like i live in new york live lived in london it's the same thing you're pressed up against so many people and sometimes the walls are broken through like you hear it you see it it leaks into your life but there's still a respect there of of separation just mm -hmm. it's such a great job of, of showcasing that and then finally obviously the way that it's shot um, this is one of the best directed movies of all time. Uh, the way that it uses reflections is just uh, staggeringly beautiful. I love the way that it works with the super wide shots, you know, to showcase again, solitude. Um, was there a particular scene that you really loved? Because this is a film that has very many like iconic shots. Was there any particular one that you were like, oh, wow, yeah, this is beautiful? Yeah, I think there are a lot of really beautiful moments. And one that particularly sticks my mind is uh, the image of NJ smoking in uh, like the, the blue sort of mm, early yeah. hours or evening hours. I'm not sure. Yeah. And in this place in Japan, like looking mm -hmm. out at the water and the water crashing against him. Yeah. Um, very moody. Yeah. But also dynamic sort of uh, shot. Like things are moving and, and welling and crashing and yes. he's just there. Yeah. This like still figure that it was really beautiful. Yeah, me. me too. Um, I think my favorite is the one that we start off with, which is the wedding, the deep red with the pink. Um, mm -hmm. It's the cover for the DVD for Criterion. There's many posters of it. Um, there's a reason. It's iconic. It looks insane. Um, yeah, that's it. I hope I have sold you all on watching this film. Um, if you can't get it on Criterion, I'm sure there's many other ways to watch it. You can rent it probably at places. Um, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I just wanted to give it a shout out and I hope you all love it. So this week for Culture Notes, we are going to be talking about the mess that is Don't Worry Darling, the film. So Jenny, could you give us a little redux? Just let us know what's going on. What's the TLDR? What's been happening? Yeah. So Don't Worry Darling, of course, is the, the film that is directed by Olivia Wilde. It's starring Florence Pugh and Harry Styles, among others. Um, it's coming out in... September, but the whole sort of lead up to this premiere has been a huge mess yeah. slash good slash bad promo for the movie itself. I'm not sure. Yeah, who's but, to say? Yeah, more or less. Um, 
you know, it's already been sort of under the microscope, I think, especially of fans of Harry Styles and Florence Pugh, because mm-hmm. Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles are dating. Yes. Harry Styles uh, fans are obsessed with the fact that, I don't know, they, they like hate Olivia Wilde with a passion because <laughs> of, of course, she's dating, you know, their idol. Yes. So it's come to attention that, like, for example, Florence Pugh has done almost zero press for this movie, which is a little bit unusual mm. for an upcoming movie that's like as hyped as this one or as well known as this one yes so there's been speculation that olivia wilde and florence Pugh hate each other Mm -hmm. or something's gone on between them and this feeds into the harry styles fans notion of olivia wilde as some like evil crazy lady um and then you know as we get closer in recent weeks there's been more press um there's now a thing between Olivia Wilde and Shia LaBeouf. Mm -hmm. So Shia LaBeouf was originally slated to star in this film before he dropped out. Olivia Wilde, while doing press, um, I think with Variety, she suggested that she had fired Shia LaBeouf because of the situation that he was creating on set. Yeah, she has a no assholes policy. Yes. How progressive um, of this pink pussy app. Right. It very sort of... of this sort of feminist actor action and <laughs> Shia LaBeouf of course like he we all know that he was he is sort of an abusive asshole in, yeah I mean he especially is especially yeah. to FKA twigs yeah. to partners of his yeah. on set um uh, these FKA twigs allegations came out I think after he had left don't worry darling right um so Olivia Wilde was essentially saying that she fired him for this reason Shia LaBeouf, who was in the middle of this some sort of like weird comeback tour attempt, I think yeah. he came back with actual receipts, um, yeah. which are pretty damning. I think they it's text messages and a video, especially recorded by Wild as she would dr- she was driving. Um, mm-hmm. Shia LaBeouf was like, actually, I quit the movie because there wasn't enough rehearsal time, right. and uh, as a counter to Olivia Wilde's claims, and then he he published this video by Olivia Wilde, who was essentially begging him to come back to the movie and the project and, you know, being very much like, Shia, can we work this out? Right. Like, Miss Flo, <laughs> this will be a wake-up call for Miss Flo. That's Florence Pugh, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Um, very much sort of like trying to coax this star back to her project. Yeah. And and at the same time, you know, many people are reading in a little bit of condescension or not disrespect in a way towards Florence Pugh Mm -hmm. and the way that she is talking about her. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are just like some of the things that have come about, come out about don't worry, darling. Um, In addition to sort of sneak peek that paints Harry Styles is like not a very good actor like this, this is a very brief clip. So it's becoming somehow like the most talked about movie for none of the reasons relating directly to its content. Just the whole mess surrounding it. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like everybody has now decided that this film is shit. And so, yes, and, and people have because, pretty much come on that. Because they've decided that, it's fun for them to see the clips of Harry Styles acting and just assume that he's like not acting well. You know, he has a very, he has his very strong British accent in that. And everyone's like, isn't he meant to be doing an American accent? And it's like, we don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Um, I haven't seen the film. Who's to say? But it's funny to imagine a world where he is so bad at maintaining his American accent that the, you know, the full, England jumps out. It's just 
I just want to see this film so I can see if it's good. I really don't give a shit about any of this. This is all fun and games to me, but it's like really getting out of hand at this point. I don't know what to think about like these videos. I don't think it really matters. I think people talk shit about each other all the fucking time. I do think it's funny that Florence, who is very active on Instagram for the most part and was like, always promotes anything that she's ever in. Um, yeah, has been, has, hasn't been promoting this. And I wonder if there's a bit of like regret with that. The excuse that she's using right now, or like what we're being told is that she's shooting Dune right now. So she's too busy to deal with anything. How do you feel about this? Like, what do you think is going on with people? Just, you know, the larger people with this? Cause I'm a little bit tired of it, if I'm being honest. Well, I think it's unfortunate because so much of it has been self-inflicted by olivia wilde in a sense yeah like on the one hand i think i want to feel bad for her and i do in some sense because she's had to deal with a lot of shit from harry styles's fans for the whole time they've been dating and this is in part related to this like this theory that florence Pugh hates olivia wilde or that olivia wilde did something to florence Pugh stems from uh, a lot of it from the harry styles fandom yeah but on the other hand like you know, she did not have to say anything about the circumstances of Shia LaBeouf's yeah. departure. Yeah. She didn't have to try to paint this into a feminist sort of action on her part to get rid of him. Yeah. When, of course, like, he's going to come back and show, actually, you're completely lying or misrepresenting the situation. And for her to say that, and then for him to come up with this video that shows her, like, beseeching him, this, like, known asshole, um, to come back and work on the movie and for this to be a wake-up call yeah. for her female star. It's just a very a stupid, it's very like, silly, yeah. ugly sort of moment. Yeah. Like, wh- she didn't have to open this sort of box yeah. and, As- and let it spiral out of control. Especially because, like, we don't know... We also don't know the context of that video, you know? Like, we don't know when she filmed it. We don't know when she said it. We don't know... We ultimately don't really know what it's about. Like, it could be about anything. I just, I, I don't trust anything that he does, but I also, I'm irritated that this is what it's gotten to for her at the same time. Like, for Olivia right, Wilde. Right, like, and this situation, which she had a hand in creating, it led to this moment yeah, now in which yeah. it's sort of becoming part of Shia LaBeouf's comeback yeah, redemption tour, exactly, in a sense. Yeah. And it's contributing to that actively, yeah. I think, also, because, you know, he is actually showing in some way that he can disprove at least part of what she right. has been saying yeah um and it's just it's so wh- why did she have to do that yeah. like you know why what was the like focus on on the work focus on the movie yeah. you know yeah. that's it's that's as, as an artist that is really i think what we should all be aspiring yeah. to do yeah and the funny part though and in a, in a very unfunny way is the th- part of it that kind of spurred it on was the fact that they were at uh com- was it a comic-con Conve- it was like a convention and then she's on stage the jason sudeikis yeah movie. and then jason sudeikis yeah. her ex gave served her call papers um while she was on stage um and that i mean i feel like that's when the mess started truly like in earnest because <laughs> that was a dramatic moment that we haven't seen happen because usually pr is very on top of their clients um and that was a moment where we saw mess being spilled over f- for the first time in a while honestly um 
And I feel like that's kind of where it started. And I just, I feel bad because I do think a part of it is because she's a female film filmmaker and because because she's like an actress, was an actress, now is trying to be a director, right? Like she's already directed one film. This is her sophomore um, attempt. And I feel like there is a humbling that's going on that I don't feel comfortable with. I think many male fil- filmmakers, especially if they're formerly actors, have also come across some kind of... Uh, industry pushback um i think i'm thinking of like bradley cooper for example um but i do think there is an element of sexism going on here absolutely i just i'm so over it i literally just want to see the film like i just want to see what this film is about i want to see if she has written a good film i want to see if she's directed a good film it's an interesting moment yeah. we'll certainly be on watching one this hand, you could say like this could be bad for the film because yeah. obviously it has turned off i think uh, some people or at least who are publicly saying like oh i'm not gonna see the film because of this it seems really annoying yeah um on the other hand some people are theorizing is this guerrilla marketing like yes. somehow everyone is suddenly talking about this film yeah. that actually has been like pretty quiet for yeah. for a while like it doesn't seem that it was getting as much hype as something like this should yeah. have gotten for like a cast and and like the director yeah. of this sort of uh fame yeah who knows? Who I don't knows? think it was a guerrilla marketing thing. I think this like spun wildly out of control. But whether or not it ultimately helps or hurts the film in terms of people turning out to see it, TBD. TBD. Uh, it, it'll be sort of an, an interesting thing to observe. Just a final note. I'm really disappointed in you, John Bernthal. <laughs> just just wanted to put that out there. That's it. Wait, why? Oh, uh, do you, you didn't see that he? So he had his own. He has his own podcast. Fuck's sake. Um, and he put on Shia LaBeouf and like oh, interviewed really? him. Yeah, about his like past transgressions. It's like platforming him and like just basically because Shia LaBeouf is doing his like comeback tour. It's like his like self flagellation. And I'm just I'm I'm disappointed in you, John. I really oh, am. I didn't even know he had a podcast. Uh, me neither. Damn. Yeah, me neither. I mean, a lot of a lot of actors and comedians I guess do. So. Yeah. Stop, stop competing with us. Like, damn, get your own thing. Get your own thing. You already, they already have their own thing, Jenny. It's acting. Yeah, yeah. Stay, Fuck stay off. out of this this thing for for people who who don't want to be on screen. And I certainly don't want to hear hot people talking. Like, I just want <laughs> you to be hot, especially men. Just shut up and be a himbo. What the fuck was the problem of just? Being quiet and being hot. Anyway, I'm disappointed in you, John. I'll say that one more time because you listen to this, obviously. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess that is it for us this week. Uh, We are going to be off next week because it's a holiday in the US. And, you know, we just want to have a nice long weekend, get some R&R for a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, in the meantime, of course... Keep watching your things. Keep letting us know if there's anything that you think we should be watching. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate every single recommendation that comes our way. Um, even if we don't get around to talking about it on a main episode, we yes. do try to keep up with what we're being recommended. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so as always, you can email us, criticismisdead at gmail.com, or just you know tweet at us or at us or DM us um, on Instagram and Twitter, where criticism is dead, all one word, on both of those platforms. Mm-hmm. For extended show notes, uh, including extra links uh tldrs everything and more from uh, our episodes subscribe to our newsletter criticism is dead uh if you feel like it please rate and review on apple Podcasts. Yeah. smooth five stars yes, uh, maybe tell a friend about us yeah. or you know shout our praises somewhere yeah. we love it when you when you do that yes um and yeah i guess thank you as always for everything and we will see you the week after next week yes 
Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelinkeskin Lu and Jenny Chichang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.